Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thank you for joining me. So are you having a good day? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read your book this morning. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. And well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. Uh, so, so tell me about your life. What you, you read books, you read books like in the morning. So that's pretty good. Yeah. I like <laughs> to read in the mornings. I feel that if you're going to speak to someone about a book, you must read the book hmm. because you took the time to write it. So I need to take the time to read it. And I also want to you know, the book is obviously very good, but what I want to dig in is what are the implications of what you are saying uh-huh. and understand that. So in terms of the world of podcasting, we're a private equity firm, oh. but we have a lot of ex-consultants and ex-consulting partners that we work with. Yeah. So we put out a podcast around the world, which is very highly ranked, where we talk about the deep issues in strategy. Hmm. What are the questions people are not asking? What are the insights people are not seeing about all of the major topics around the world. And one of the big topics today is trust. Yeah. A supposed erosion of trust. Was it ever there to begin with? Is it a cyclical change? Is it secular? Is just, so when I saw your book and someone said, you got to read this book, I thought, wow, this like cuts to the core of what's happening in the world today. It's one of those foundational things like strategy. You have to understand it. Right, right. Uh, And, you know, I remember how long it took I think I just put it, you know, for strategy to actually come into its own. Yes. And what you're seeing now, strategy is becoming a little bit commoditized because everyone's become pretty good at it. Right. And they now have to pick up the other skill to distinguish themselves in the marketplace. Right. And I think trust is becoming more important as power passes to consumers. Mm. When digital consumers can vote in real time on their apps. Yeah, absolutely. So they can make a snap decision on whether they trust a company or they don't trust a company. And oftentimes, as you know, trust can be manipulated. Right. It's a tool. You know, people reading your book, I think some of them are going to say, wow, there's such brilliant tips on how I can pretend to care. (laughs) I think people are doing that, right? Oh, yeah. No, no. You know, it's like any other. If you figured out, like, what's the mechanism here? it can always be used for good or ill, right? You know, that's just it. And that's what I loved about the book because everyone talks about trust like it's a great thing. And I say it's a great thing if used well. Right. And if you look at relationships, for example, which is a great metaphor or comparison point, there are many men usually who abuse trust or create the impression of trust to control people. Mm -hmm. Call them narcissistic people. Yeah. Right. So I was reading the book and I was thinking, this is fabulous, but what we got to do is get into a deeper discussion about not just trust being good, but how trust can be used to be good. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. And, uh, and it is so interesting, you know, in such a polarized, politicized world to understand, you know, this other thing about trust, which is it's absolutely in the eye of the beholder. Right. Yes, yeah. no, you're Here's right. The- but let, let's start talking about 
whether trust is actually eroding, is it getting worse? And let's maybe stick to the US because I know it's going to be different around the world, right? So what are you seeing? I mean, is trust something that we're seeing less of? What is the trend? What is the pattern over the last decade, few decades? The pattern of trust uh, is, well, it comes and goes. Uh, at the moment, business is having a moment, right? Mm-hmm. So if you pay attention to the Edelman Trust Barometer, uh, which at least in the U.S. is the most trusted uh, source for yeah. how trust is being measured. Uh, And right now, business is the only institution uh, in society compared to government, to the media, NGOs, that uh, is trusted both to kind of be good and to do good. Uh, And so it's trusted both on the dimensions of competence and integrity. And it's at the moment, the only institution, but even within that, you know, CEOs have lost Mm -hmm. some ground uh, as a class because uh, one of the statistics out of the Edelman is that something like 55% of people feel that CEOs manipulate information in order to tell a story about their firm. Uh, And so so there's trust kind of in business as a whole, there's trust in my company. Uh, And then, you know, but the institutions, the board has lost a little bit of standing for some pretty good reasons. Uh, and, And so it, but I would say that at the moment, uh, because of COVID, e- trust is on everyone's mind. Yes. Right. You know, it didn't used to be that you and I would have a conversation. And the first thing we ask each other is, have you been well? That's true. And so whatever long-term trends, and I think there are several that have led to this moment of trust being something that's worth thinking about, uh, there's this immediate problem uh, of the fact that we have lives at risk uh, and varying degrees of capability uh, in countries and as well as inside companies as to how well people are keeping other people safe. And that, you know, unless you were in heavy manufacturing, a mining company, that did not used to be uh, a feature of, you know, if you're going down a list of would I work there, it it wouldn't even show up, right? And so now all of a sudden it's, can I trust this business to figure out what to do about masking, not masking, you know, who's been vaccinated, who hasn't been vaccinated, what happens to people are lying about being vaccinated, Right. And so, so, you know, we're looking to businesses, uh, even more than government at this point, to put in place policies and practices that keep everyone safe uh, and don't, don't even necessarily buy into the notion that we can trust everyone. So that's when processes and policies start to take over. So, you know, I can want to trust everybody, but if I actually want to go into a restaurant or a store, I'll feel better if I see people who are masked. Because I don't know how to understand the bet that they would otherwise be making on people's honesty in reporting their vaccination status. What you're saying is quite profound because I don't think people have thought about this the way you have. Previously, when we spoke about trust, it's almost always as if it's a slight against politicians, right? Mm -hmm. That's generally what's the, the discourse been. But now, as you've rightfully pointed out, because of COVID, and the fact that people are returning to work, sort of the arena for the trust discussion is going to be how companies are going to manage that conversation and the processes and regulations they're going to choose to follow and put in place 
And what that means is that people are not just asking from a consumer perspective whether I trust a company, it's whether I trust my life to work. That's a very profound and deep discussion to have. Right, right. And, and I think that, you know, within the business domain, you see lots of different companies doing either well or not so well. So Amazon is an example of a highly trusted organization. I read that, yes. Why is that? So I, I think that when that data came out, that was uh, obviously pre-COVID. Uh, and so there it was, that's the, like the first foundation of trust, which is competence, right? So, yes. you know, if you do nothing you else- You get the job done. Right. And, and so, and nobody was as good at getting the job done, you know, as Amazon has been in terms of creating this marketplace for where mm -hmm. we can look customer reviews, we can get stuff the next day, you know, they transformed uh, how consuming works. And so on the strength of their, not just the idea that they had, but how well they execute, you know, I think people said, well, you know, if I don't trust anyone else, I can count on the fact that, you know, my makeup is coming tomorrow, you know, just when Amazon said, but we know that Amazon has struggled and at times not well uh, to keep its employees safe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, the scandals that emerged very early on. Yes, about, right, about cases of outbreaks of COVID in distribution centers at Amazon, you know, for people who kind of care about everyone's welfare, uh, you know, that was like a black mark. And that's how, you know, that's why trust is more than just competence. Because if it were just competence, that we wouldn't care. And what you're saying is very powerful because let's unpack this, right? Is your research showing that people trust Amazon to do what it promises? Or are they saying we trust Amazon to be a responsible corporate actor in the world? Because they're different, right? Right. And so I think that one of the things that's interesting about trust is it's actually quite limited. So yeah. trust is a three-part relationship. You know, I'm the trusting party, you're the person or organization I'm trusting, and then there's the thing I'm trusting you to do, right? And I am not, I may be trusting Amazon to get my makeup to me on time. Mm -hmm. They're not walking my dog. They're not taking care of my grandchildren. Uh, and so all, quote unquote, I have to do is to trust them in that domain. And yes. but what happens is that because trust is more than just this question of competence, when you start seeing things that move into kind of the moral domain, is yes. this a business I want to do business with? That's when you start seeing people saying, well, they could be good on that thing, but not on the other things that our research show matter, uh, which has to do with the motives that we, you know, assign to companies based on whose interests they serve you know, and the means, are they fair and how they go about doing what they do and what impact do they actually have? Not impact that they claim, but what's the on the ground, I can see it, I can count it for myself. They can't tell me it is something I don't see. Yeah. Uh, what impact do they have? And so, so that's why companies can be trusted on some dimensions and not on others. So and that's we, interesting. So if you're a CEO and you've commissioned your team to understand how the consumer class and how the general public perceives you, do they trust you for lack of a better word? You have to really understand what it is they are measuring, trust about what? Exactly, exactly. And, and quite honestly, you know, if I were, you know, back at Fidelity or I'm still in fashion retailing where I worked before I came mm -hmm. to Harvard Business School, you know, I would, I'd know kind of what's the domain I'm expected to be trusted in. 
Yes, right? but I don't think people really think about that. No, I, I don't. And, and that's one of the reasons why this book took so long to write and is based on so many case studies. And yes, you know, which are very good on the ground research, because it really had to be built up from we have all these ways of thinking about trust, but none of them actually seem to be making a difference in how people behaved. And we want to, yes. and also where were levers that companies could do something about, you know, so trust yes. is a vague feeling, you know, will be nice to have, but damn, if I can figure out how to get there. But if it can be divided into parts like competence and motives and means and impact, I can start to measure those things. I was also thinking of it from a strategy perspective. You know, if you're like, for example, the CEO of a large bank mm. and you are trusted in just one domain of banking, maybe investment banking. Right. Your firm is widely recognized and widely trusted as the go-to people for investment banking. Yep. That can also be an Achilles heel if that's all you're known for and you're trying to grow your wealth management team. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's where uh, if you're growing a business or if you're managing, you know, a multi-divisional kind of entity, uh, it's not good enough to just be the go-to place for that one thing. Because what you hope is that you've built something that's bigger uh, and where you can leverage the fact that you do many things and you do each of them well. Yeah. Uh, and if your strategy is, is so we wrote a case uh, about uh, NCB Capital uh, in Saudi Arabia, and they had a CEO who came in to turn around this investment bank. And up till that time, they had focused almost exclusively on uh, brokerage as their business. <laughs> because it was a very frothy market, uh, and they were able to make lots and lots of money off of trading transactions. Uh, but the CEO is a woman named Sarah El Suhaimi came in and she said, I want a reliable stream of yeah. revenue. And, and so, you know, the beginning of her turnaround was all about strategy. You know, it was, okay, what about our investment bank? Yes. You know, what about our, our private equity investments? And those were the areas where they built up, you know, this continuing stream of revenues where they get money all the time, regardless. And she really de-emphasized uh, the brokerage transaction revenue because that's so cyclical. Yes. And when you think about trust, it tends to be grouped into what is called the, the soft skills, you mm. know, leadership and so on. But if you really think about it very carefully, the world operates on capitalism. That means there must be a buyer on one side and a seller on the other side. And the only time they'll do a deal is if they trust each other, right? Right. So it sits at the heart of capitalism, but we tend to think of trust as a soft issue when it's actually the sort of glue that keeps everything working together. Right. Well, and I think there's a, that's a really good point. And there's a reason, another reason why I think trust has become so prominent as an idea. It's because it's at the heart of stakeholder capitalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if all I have to worry about is whether my shareholders are happy with me. Yes. You, know, you know, from Milton Friedman, you know, 1970 yes. Yes. on, the world became a really easy place yeah. to manage in. But now we've seen because of problems that are too big to solve for any one company, like climate change, mm -hmm. uh, and also because people's expectations of the involvement of businesses in society have really shifted. And so now, you know, being good in business at strategy, it's a multi-stakeholder game. And if we can't pull this off, and that's what the, our book on trust is about, is like, how do you actually manage trust when you have stakeholders with conflicting interests? How do you balance those interests and think about that? 
Uh, and so, you know, we did a, a case about Dave Cote and his turnaround mm -hmm. of Plainville. And, you know, this was uh, in response to the Great Recession. Uh, and so he had a choice as to whether or not he would uh, use layoffs or furloughs uh, to manage largely yeah, the side of the business. And he ended up trying to literally, so he prioritized first. He said, the customer is our number one stakeholder. So if we can't satisfy customers during this downtime, mm -hmm. that our new products come out on time, that the projects we said would be done, were going to be done. He said, you know, we will not have a sustaining business at the other end. Yes. And then he was very clear that he needed to then balance the interests of employees uh, and investors. Because he knew investors given a shot and it would say, well, yeah. just let the people off. We need that quick hit to the bottom line. And he knew that employees, if given a chance, would say, well, forget about investors. Times are tough. You need us. And let's not pay any attention to stock price. And he wasn't willing to kind of do that either way. He said, I'm going to do as much as I can for both of them so that the investors need to understand that if I lay off a whole bunch of employees, we will not have a good recovery because there are a whole series of things that we need to do. So it's in their long-term interest uh, for us to actually go with this furloughs decision. And with employees, you know, he had to tell them that if investors lose trust in us, you know, we won't have the money that we need to invest in the business. Mm -hmm. And so it's your advantage, you know, if we yes. keep them as happy as we can in a recession. Uh, and so that, you know, is almost the best example I can think of, of, of sort of the trust art of balancing competing stakeholder interests. And honestly, if we can't figure out how to do that, then we don't have a prayer of living up to the promise of stakeholder capitalism, because it's all about managing competing interests. I like this example. You know, when I read it, I enjoyed it because there's a certain things we need to unpack here for the audience, which I think is important. First, the CEO understood that he has different stakeholders. And he realized he has to manage trust for each of them separately because they are looking for different things, right? So that's yeah. very important. It's not just about, do people trust my company? Because people is a broad group. You've got to segment them and know which segment is important that you need to cater for, right? You, know, you talked about employees and investors, even within investors, I'm sure you have to segment. Absolutely. Right. But then I noticed something else in this case study, which is a good case study. He also prioritized the order in which group he's mm. going to start building trust. He almost had a, a core. He, yep. he, he secured that. And then he realized if I secure this, I then have permission and I also have the reputation to go to the next group and say, hey, I've done this. I'm doing it for the good of the company. They're on board. Are you now on board? Right. And I, I think uh, in addition to thinking that way, he also understood that it was to everyone's advantage yes. to have customers believe in Honeywell and its capacity. Right. So it wasn't just yes. a question of singling out and saying they're the most important. Uh, it's in fact, that gives them the platform on which to decide which products to go forward with. Are they something one that a company that you want to invest in? And so, you know, so and so many people were not as clear as Dave Cote was about yeah. who you put on top. Yes. Right? And that, that was the damage of shareholder capitalism taken to an endless extreme, uh, you know, which is that, well, as long as we keep our shareholders happy, we're running a good business. Uh, and for people who've been in business and love business, you know, that's just a nonsensical statement because, yeah, yeah, you're you right. know, 
the business actually relies on customer satisfaction and the people who serve them, and then it's funded through investors. That's just how business works. Uh, and so I think that there's a kind of a writing of, of the ship here in terms of understanding not just that there are multiple stakeholders, but which ones matter and why. Yes. I mean, that, that's the key thing, because in my previous life, I used to be a corporate strategy partner in consulting, and I did a lot of restructuring and turnaround work. And, you know, in, in restructuring and turnaround, it's always a trust issue because the company is about to go bankrupt and you've got different levels of creditors fighting for control, right? It's all about that. But what I noticed over time is in sort of the early stages, uh, when a CEO comes in, the good CEOs, they focus purely on categorizing and ranking the different stakeholders and engaging them sequentially. Then I noticed there were some other not so good CEOs who would delegate trust building to an outside PR firm. They would bring in a PR firm to manage the reputation, as they call it, of the company, not realizing that the reputation management was all based on the sincere actions of the CEO. Right? But that's now changing because we see CEOs talking out all the time that trust, care is the most important thing. What do you think has caused that shift? What do you think has caused trust to become more of a central skill that leaders need to have? I think that some of it I've talked about before, which is the requirement in business to meet the needs of multiple stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And I I think I can't emphasize that enough. So trust uh, in the way that I look at it is how you build strong and powerful stakeholder relationships. Yes. And that's at the heart of the work that needs to be done. So if I'm in a business right now, I've either got domains where that's gonna be questioned or I have certain stakeholder groups who actually may not be that happy with me. And so that's where I start doing the work. Reputation, it's kind of like the investment that we make in you know, brand marketing for a yeah. company as a whole. You know, and that's endlessly debated about, do you get anything out of that? Uh, yes. Versus in, you know, investing in marketing around your various products and services. Uh, and I think that trust is sort of works that way, which is if you try to attack it as this big thing, that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to work for you. But if you become quite systematic in how you try to analyze your business and your stakeholder relationships and you know, which businesses are in good shape with relation to those and which kinds of businesses actually are more subject to, to harm. So I was talking to another person today and we started talking about, well, you know, if you think about mining and extractive yeah. uh, industries, Okay, so they will always have a trust problem yeah. because their business is coming into communities, extracting resources and leaving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if they don't have a playbook for how you do that, the people perceive as fair at the community level, at the employee level, and then around the world because they're trying to get mandates in different places, there's just no way that people are going to want to let them in. Uh, and so yes. in some in some domains, you know, this is front and center. Healthcare uh, technology is increasingly becoming one of those domains. Uh, and then there are other kind of ordinary businesses where you just kind of hit a bump in a road or you want to do much better, right? And yeah. I, I think that that's another aspect of trust. Uh, when we say competence, we also mean innovation. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's not just the doing. So going back to Amazon or Uber, you know, companies who we have mixed feelings about, uh, it was the innovation that really sparked their growth. Yeah. And 
and there's tremendous need for that innovation, both in relation to customer relationships, uh, but also uh, inside the firm. So yes. all the structuring cases that we write about in the book, these are people who thought in a very creative way about how can we do this thing that we need to do and not hurt people in the process. Mm -hmm. That's not obvious. Right. And so, you know, whether it's Nokia, who's another example uh, that I've written about elsewhere, I mean, they had a process of restructuring. They knew in 2011 that they were going down in their phone business. They had been outcompeted. Uh, their stock had lost like 68% of its value in three years. They were facing a period of time when they were going to have to declare their first loss in 18 years. And so Yorma Olulo was the chairman at the time, and he knew they were going to have to have a really large restructuring. It turned out it had to affect 18,000 people wow. uh, in 13 countries around the world. Uh, but the other problem that they had is that they had had in 2008 a restructuring in Bochum, Germany, which went so far wrong uh, that they ended up losing $800 million in sales and $100 million in profit. This was kind of a back of the end yes. that they did when they said, if we made as much money in Germany as we ended up making in France and you know the surrounding countries, how much more money would we have made? Because this thing was poisonous in Europe. And people really, there, there were programs to send your Nokia phone back to Finland. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, and all that sort of stuff. So, but what they ended up coming up with was this remarkable program that the government of Finland ended up recognizing as an innovative way to manage restructuring. So they said, okay, you're going to have five paths to getting a new job. And the whole thing was focused around how many people can we help get a new job the day they leave the phone? So they know where they're going. Uh, yeah. So the first path was you get a job at Nokia. Second path, we help you get a job outside of Nokia. Third path, we'll fund a business if you can put together a good business plan because they have lots of engineers. Yes. Right? Yes. right. And then the fourth path is we'll support your education if you want to go do something else. And they even had a fifth path, which is if you can think of something we haven't thought of, you know, let us know about it. Uh, and so they ended up deploying this. And so everyone knew that, you know, you have to be competent to do that across 13 countries yes. with 18,000 people. So there are lots of tailoring at the local level to make yeah. the thing work. Uh, people trusted their motives because all of a sudden they were saying, we really do care about these employees who are letting go. Uh, and we care about the communities. So they had a separate program to try to fill the buildings that they were vacating. Uh, and then people did another part of this trust dimension uh, is the question of means, you know, how do you go about what you do? And, and they had tremendous information fairness. They told people as much as like two years in advance, you are going to be losing your job and we're going to do everything in our power to help you get a job. Uh, between now and that period of time. And the results were amazing. You know, at the end of the two and a half years that they ran the program, 60% of 18,000 people across 13 countries knew their job the day they left the firm. That's now, I've studied restructuring for a decade, and I've never seen anything even close to that in terms of competence and impact. Uh, not only that, they still put out about a third of their revenue came from new products, mm -hmm. which is the same percent it had been before they announced yeah. the restructuring. Uh, and the whole thing actually only cost about 4% of their restructuring charges. 
So that was the amazing thing. It's like yes. you put this infrastructure together, but they didn't hire an outside firm to come in and restructure for yeah. us. This was built from within. And the whole goal here was we think we can do a better job. And they ended up before they started this program, they went to the board and they said, we are making such a big bet on trust that we need you to say whether or not you support what we're about to do. Because we're going to tell all kinds of people that this is what we're doing. This is what we're committing all of the resources of Nokia behind this. And yeah. we want to make sure that you're okay saying that we can prioritize the needs of these employees who are letting go before the needs of the firm. Because if you're not going to buy that, then we can't move forward with this. And the board, to their credit, you know, led by your yeah. old kind of played ball. So, so that's innovation in trust. Yes. Now, there's two very important things you said, and I want to pick through each one, very critical things. I'm going to start with the first one. You made a comment, which I agree with. Certain sectors inherently will have lower trust. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you gave the example of extractive industries, mining, oil and gas, which is the sectors I used to serve, by the way, and I know the challenges they face, right? You're going into people's homes. You're going to have a massive disruptive impact on the water supply. They need to trust you. And invariably, they actually don't trust you. Right. Now, here's the thing that I think many CEOs maybe are not thinking about. If you are working in a sector where there's going to be invariably lower trust, it's almost as if this could be a competitive advantage if you can find some way to be trustworthy. Because I remember I did work for um, a resources company. I won't mention them by name, but they were so careful about safety and security that if you went onto their site without spending one hour in a safety training program, they would shut down the entire site. Yeah. And the kind of, you know, in anywhere they went in the world, they had a very strong reputation. And I was always thinking about what you said. They almost chose trust and safety as their competitive advantage because they knew how hard it was for other extractive competitors to match them on that, right? So what I'm thinking about is that I think that every CEO needs to understand what type of industry they're in, whether trust can be this competitive advantage, and how do they build those competencies? That's an excellent uh, analysis. And I I think what I would add to that just in the same domain is Anglo-American created this program, they called it SEAT, and it is a a socioeconomic uh, impact tool. So I think I put the A wrong. Uh, And what it was is it's a tool, a remarkably detailed tool of all of the different quote unquote externalities that come with being in the mining business. And they would have their site managers, regardless of whether they, they, the goal was to do this tool as an assessment when they start and then updating because they know that there's going to be a departure date at some point. So who owns the infrastructure? You know, if we put in roads, if we put in water, if we put in schooling or hospitals, what happens to all of that? Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, it's it's stark when you think about uh, something like mining where it's so yeah. concrete and you can see it. Uh, but, you know, we all wish that the technology firms mm-hmm. would spend a little bit more time thinking about the societal implications of the products and services that they create, you know, yes. because it's it's not good to have something become this large, this powerful, and to not have a sense as to, well, what are you actually managing here? 
Yes. And I think that that's been the challenge as people have looked at Facebook and what has gone on there. And, you know, most business people would say, well, what right do you have to go into a business where you haven't figured out how you actually manage the risks that you're imposing on other people? That's right. a good point. So let's think about this. Right? You give technology companies as an example. I think it's an excellent example. And we spoke about mining companies and you use Anglo-American as an example. Do you feel that mining companies have an advantage because they've been around for over 100 years? They've been through scandals. They've worked in parts of the world where you know, they shouldn't have worked in some cases. So my, my thinking here is a technology company, some of these companies have only been around for five years, right? Right. So right. they don't have institutional experience of knowing how important risk is. But why isn't their board of directors then assembled with that risk mitigation concept in mind? Yeah, so you put your finger on what is, I think, is the longer I've studied this, becoming a really interesting leverage point mm -hmm. on the question of trust, which is the role of the board. Yes, that we don't usually think about boards when we talk about even the responsibilities of businesses. Yes, you know, that's true. What is the business doing about it? But there's something quite appropriate to saying, well, this issue of trust, because the board is the linchpin yeah. uh, between the outside players and the inside players. And that's, you know, it is supposed to stand for the, for the institution as a whole and not for any given management team. And that's why I think some of these issues are coming up and becoming so prominent at the board level, whether it's ESG, DEI, uh, climate change. I mean, you name the uh, political involvement, you know, they're being, so the pr problem gets presented to the company, but I think reasonable people would step back and say, okay, is that board equipped to actually manage that and to advise yeah. for that? Uh, and I think that that's an area where there could be significant work uh, and influence. As for the tech companies, you know, I, I cut them some slack, uh, but we know that all mining companies don't do a particularly great job on these yeah, issues. That's true. How long they've been in business. And I do think that there's a kind of a, an ethic to being an innovator, uh, which is that your job is not just to see into the future as to what might sell, but also what are you creating and what impact will that have? And I think that that's always true, but it's particularly true in innovation where your job is to look into the future. And so where was the scenario planning that said, yeah. you know, where the, how could this go wrong? All right, and if it's all just upside and no one's looking at where the risks are in the model to the, not, not just to the company for sure, but to the people who use it and spillover effects, then they're not doing a good job as an innovator. You know, if this were a pharma company, we'd say, oh, come on. You know, no excuse. You yes. have to be looking at risk. And so I, I don't cut the tech companies, you know, that much slack because I do feel like it is dangerous to have people feel that they can go into a business and not think through systematically what's the nature of this business that we're managing here and that we're creating. Yeah, I mean, if you look at banks, for example, let's use banks as an example because there's a sub point here. Banks have huge risk management departments. I mean, they have hundreds and thousands of people working there costing millions and millions of dollars, right? But those risk management departments manage a very narrow definition of risk, exactly. right? They don't manage trust. And then the other thing to remember is that those departments strategy is driven by what the regulator says they should do. If a regulator says, do this, they'll do it. If a regulator does not say anything, the risk management department says, we don't have to worry about it. 
So it's almost as if the government has to shine a spotlight in terms of what you need to think about before companies even think about it. And I mean, that seems to be the disconnect because unless someone is telling you, we're going to punish you and penalize you, nobody seems to take it seriously. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really interesting point. And it's similar to how you think about corporate responsibility more generally. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a point of view around that, which says if you are waiting for the government to put up the wall, yeah. do not go further than this, then you're not running a responsible business. Because that's, that's not the governance job. That's your job to figure out where those lines are. Uh, and, you know, we've had at, at Harvard Business School, I've been involved with the course yeah. on corporate. Uh, leadership and corporate accountability, you know, and Preet Bharara came in and spoke uh, yes. to us. And it was all about do not, we are not staffed to do this thing that you think we're doing. Yeah. We are not going to be able to find all the risks that you know are yes. in your business. Uh, and so I, I, I do think that we need a different attitude. I think government is more a partner because yeah. government is much reliant on businesses to say, you know what, this is a risk you guys should be looking into. Yeah. You know, I hate regulation, but let me tell you, if you don't do this across our industry, then we're going to get variability and the variability is not going to be good, right? Because some people are going to take advantage of this loophole, other people won't, and we're, you know, we need you guys to be part of this. Yeah, and you really can't expect government to understand something better than the people who developed it. Exactly. Government's always going to be a lag regulator. It's never right. going to be a lead regulator. You know that, that movie? I don't know if you've seen that movie called Minority Report with Tom Cruise. Oh. It's set in the future whereby they can go into your mind and predict what you're going to do and stop the crime before it happens. You know, government is never going to be like that. Right. If the government's setting up regulation, it's usually trying to fix a problem years after it happened. I mean, look at the regulation to take control of Microsoft, right? Mm-hmm. All of that went through, and by the time the dust had settled, the world had already changed. Microsoft was no longer a threat. Right. You know, the problem with many people in business is we like to say we don't want the government involved, but oftentimes, unless the government tells us what's important, we don't really do anything about it. Right. And I think that that's, you know, so, but if your goal is to be trusted as a company, all of a sudden you say, that's on me to figure that out. Right. Yes. Changing your frame of reference to what's the goal here. And if my goal is to be trusted, then it's my goal to be trusted. And I'm not going to have someone else tell me how that has to happen. I can use all of what I know about my business to figure that out. But it's definitely on me. I'm not going to expect the government to give me a seal of approval because it doesn't work like that. But that's why I think making getting better at trust in critical areas of your business with stakeholder relationships that you need to work on, I think that it's a healthy goal because it really helps us talk about our responsibilities and act on them in ways that we otherwise might not do. Uh, because the goal really shifts the nature of what's the, what are we trying to make happen here. You know, if you think about this, we use all these terms to describe trust and stakeholders and so on. But it really comes down to what the CEO thinks his or her role is and what they want to be known for. What is their reason of being? Right. And so, you know, I working, uh, I don't know if I can actually talk about that case yet. Uh, sorry. Uh, that okay. was 
of kind of closing yeah. up. I'm like, you know, a consultant. It's like, yeah. no, no. Yeah, I have that same problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Right. Uh, but there are some very interesting CEOs who are doing really, and Dave Cote, I mean, yeah. you know, I'm a business person and I, you know, part of what I love about doing research is like, well, but I want to work for that guy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so it was like, yeah. Yeah, he's tough as nails, you know, and all that yeah. stuff. And but but it's like, is he smart? Is he ethical? Does he have a sense as to what makes sense to do? And the other thing that I admire about him so much uh, is that he is relentless about what is really true here, and he doesn't accept received wisdom. Right for him, it's like, what can I see? And the, so you know, this was the restructuring that I talked about. Their decision to use furloughs. He had been through two big layoffs at GE. Mm -hmm. yes. We saw what had happened when that occurred. And so that's the other thing is the good CEOs are great at pattern recognition. Yes. And they're really good at sort of saying, okay, I have seen this before and I do not, and I, regardless of what people think is true about it, here's what I know. Uh, and here's yeah. what I do. And that's what gives them the courage to kind of do these unusual things. Uh, and so I, I do think that the role of the, and, you know, people sometimes say, well, who owns trust? And it's definitely like any other major thing you're trying to make happen inside a company. It's from the CEO, right? And, and I usually, yep. as a business person, I br bristle at that because it's like, well, everything is important then unless the CEO, you know, mm -hmm. cares mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. But in this case, because it's asking people to prioritize differently, to think differently about who matters and why, uh, to worry more about are they being fair and things like that. If the CEO isn't sending out signals around all of that as a way of thinking about business in the world, then there's no way I'm going to make that happen inside my firm. The example you gave of David is a good example because, as you said, he recognized the pattern. But then he did two things that all great leaders do, I think. He then used the pattern. It's one thing to recognize, you've got to use it, and then you've got to improve it to create a new pattern. Right. Right. This right. is the three steps of, I think, good leadership, pattern recognition, pattern utilization, and pattern recreation, or, you know, create a new pattern that works for your unique circumstances. Right. And, and that's the same thing is true of the story I told about Nokia. Yeah. That same kind of, okay, we saw what happened in Bochum, not good. You know, we intend yeah. to do something about it but then it really was you know what was the pattern and how can we break that pattern uh, and create a different process and so this is all pretty creative work you know it's not like uh, what would I say compliance in the yes, yes. conventional sense of you know I drag along with me behind regulations and try to figure out are we going to run afoul of them and what should we do about it this is really thinking in a quite creative way about who are we trying to do business with how do what do they think about us are we clear about what we want to give them and how can we communicate that through our actions you know, that's like, you know, whiteboards everywhere, you know, let's talk about that. <laughs> because that's a strategy question about how would this start to change how it is that we think about who we are in the world and how it is that we want to do business. Yeah. And you said the right thing here. It's about actions, right? Mm. It's not about what you put in your annual report. It's about the things you do when you know nobody is watching you as a business. Right. No, that that's and I, I think that uh, the benefit of having spent two decades in business before becoming a faculty member at HBS is that I still think of myself as a working executive. Yeah, that gives you a fresh perspective from other researchers. 
Right. And it's, it's why I care so much about, do these ideas make sense? Do they work? Would, just, would, would something different happen if you use these ideas? So I, I, you know, I love ideas for their own sake, but what matters to me is implementation and making change and doing things better. Uh, and so that's why I wrote the book. You know, it, it's like for once, you know, I felt like, okay, yeah. I've got some stuff here that can help. Yeah. Uh, but it's very much from this kind of, if I were in business, you know, and I'm in one kind of business, higher education, uh, but if I were back in, you know, a corporate setting, this would sort of help me think somewhat differently about how I look at some issues. And I, and so once I, and in particular, because we found such great examples that we write about in the book, you know, if you can't find someone doing it, then who cares? Yes, (laughs) that's true. It's a very good way of saying it. If you can't find someone who's doing it. That's a worrying sign, actually, if you can't find someone who's doing it, that should scare you. <laughs> right, right. And you could be so far ahead of the curve, you know, that yeah. there's no one over that. But usually it's more if this is a good idea, you know, you just have to get lucky in how it is that you find the people and, and understand what's going on. Yes. Now, let's take the Nokia example for just a minute here. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the board and the CEO driving this, right? They've approved it. They've endorsed yeah. it. And then you've got employees, lots of them all over the world, rolling out this set of actions. Here's a question I have. Is it the fact that people went through this process because they trusted Nokia? Or did they trust the employees telling them what's going to happen? And that's why they trusted Nokia. It's a difficult question. Yeah, no, I, I actually think it, it, it's hard for me. It was easy for them. So, so what they ended yeah. up doing is they appointed, they had a very rigorous process of saying, who's going to lead this in each country? Okay. And what they did is they, they did a lot of searching around who has cachet, who is yeah. trusted, who do people feel is a good leader. And they, yes. by the margin, almost every example had people who themselves were going to be losing their jobs. Right. So this is not someone yes. coming corporate to help you. It's like, That's interesting. That's very I'm, a, I'm a beneficiary of this. And so all of a sudden, I'm not on the other side of the table. You and I are on the same side of the table. And we're trying to figure out how to make this work. And all of a sudden, that shifts what's going on. So when you get, did your hierarchy, there's Nokia at yeah. the top, there's the board, and sure. then there's employees. They inserted this leadership dimension that was part of what was so brilliant about their implementation was understanding that it's going to be different in Hungary. It's going to be different in China. It's going to be different in India. And so there was going to have to be adaptation because some countries cared more about certain aspects of this than others. And they definitely wanted people who were trusted. And those people met with the chairman and the then CEO, Stephen Elop, uh, to talk mm-hmm. about that what they were going to do. And it was basically kind of a pep talk. You know, you are the team who's going to yes. lead this thing. Uh, and so all of that was brilliant in the way of understanding how it is that you do hard things. Yes. And it sounds to me, confirm this to me, that they didn't pick the most senior person. They picked the most trusted person. Exactly. Yeah. No, this was not a hierarchy. It's like you're in charge of, you know, the Western Hemisphere for this yeah. and get the role. No, this was like, who can lead this particular effort yes. of helping people get jobs in a way that will be credible and smart and tailored to the environment where people will believe that they're trying to do the best by them. And I feel this is something a lot of companies get right, especially when I've seen large rollouts of new strategies or restructurings at companies. They tend to give it to the most senior person 
the person who has the biggest title because they feel authority will compel employees to act. But there's a difference between employees acting because they trust you versus doing it because they feel they'll be fired if they don't do it, right? Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and I, I, you know, and by the way, if you're in the middle of changing things, sometimes if you're in a business, it's not so hard to know who those, it's hard to know who those people are. Yeah, right? I mean, I feel that, you know, the, the central point here is trust is very localized. It can't be right. centralized. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you pulled it up to that level because I think that that's right. And that is the big point is that trust is this very specific thing. It's not like this wrapper that you put on anything, on anyone and have good results. It all has to come together in this local way uh, because yes. it really has this moral dimension to it and not just a competence dimension. So let's think about this, right? The Finnish culture is very different from India, China, the United States. So that means that they have to pick leaders in each part of the world and trust them that they will come up with an approach that's going to look like nothing that they would use in Finland, but is going to cater to the needs of Americans, Chinese, Indians, and so on. That requires a lot of trust on the side of the leadership in Finland. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, no. This, this, the model itself was a decentralized, it was sort of, you know, a big global idea localized to different markets. Uh, yes. And, you know, that's always the game in a global business, but you can play that game well or not so well, right? Yes, and I think the point here that I want the readers to really understand is that you only know you trust someone if you're exposing yourself to them. Yes. Otherwise, there's no proof of trust, right? Right, right. And, and trust is, it's a relationship of vulnerability on the part of the trusting party. Yes, right? So I'm trusting you with some action that I'm hoping you will do and that you will have good intentions toward me, you know, that you'll treat me fairly and that the impact at the end of this is going to be positive or at least not negative. Uh, and so it is this combination of competence and then these actions in the moral domain. And I think that's why it's been so hard for all of us to get our arms around it, because mm -hmm. as business people, we're not so comfortable. Yes, you know, in this area, what can I count, you know, all that sort of stuff. But this is as countable as anything else. You know, there's some very interesting work that's going on, even uh, at Deloitte, which I, I do some collaboration yeah, with yeah. Uh, around how it is that they measure, how you can measure trust in a corporation. And they can do things like data scraping so that you can see how you're looked at from the outside. They have a very good process of looking at internally and then against your industry. And, and so this can be measured. Right. I mean, I've, yes. I've been talking measures all the way through, but they've been sort of, you know, big measures at the end. Yeah. Of, uh, but what they're discovering is that, you know, below the level of the Edelman trust barometer is that there's stuff that you can do that's quite specific to mm -hmm. measuring trust. And that it was part of why I wanted to collaborate with them is that as someone who understands the importance of implementation, if you can't measure this, then you have no way of establishing a baseline and you have no way of understanding progress. Yeah, you know, the good analogy here, I was trying to think how listeners can get this point. I think it's maybe one of the most important points about baselining, knowing where you are. It's like before you send soldiers into combat, you would never send a Navy SEAL team in unless you knew they trusted each other. Right. 
And you, you'd have to ask whatever you call the head of the Navy SEAL team, base commander, whatever it is, I would need to know that this team trusts each other. Otherwise, I'm never going to put them into that kind of situation. But a lot of companies seem to be afraid to even ask themselves that question. Right. How much, what is the level of trust here before we go into combat, combat in inverted commas? But it, it's almost that they're doing themselves a disservice, right? Because if they knew the level of trust and they took active steps, they could be so much better. Right. Right. And, you know, there is actually quite a lot of academic literature on trust in leaders, for example. Yes. So there's this great study of NCAA basketball teams. Uh, and what they found was that, you know, the teams with the highest level of trust in the coach won the most games. Yeah. And the teams with the lowest level of trust in their coach lost the most games. Yes. And, and, you know, and the verbatims around that research are, you know, well, once I understood what coach was trying to do for us, mm -hmm. I would do what he wanted us to do because I trusted that he knew what he was doing and that he had our interests at heart. Uh, and so that, you know, there's a study uh, of some holiday inns, 65 and 100 employees were studied yeah. about various leaders and attributes and the attribute that made the most sense in terms of increased profitability uh, had to do with whether or not the manager, the leader was trusted. So they looked yes. at lots of other dimensions of manager behavior and the trust that people had in the, uh, in the leader actually turned out to be like a $250,000 revenue bump in highly trusted organizations. So, yes. so I think that there's a lot of opportunity for companies to benefit from thinking this way and starting to try to understand where their baseline is uh, and even how to do that in a credible way so that people don't think that this is just now the trust police coming in. There's also another side. Now we've been talking about innovation and working with customers. There's also a big cost component here. Right. You know, I used to work in consulting, whereby as a consulting partner, you operate in a set of principles. There's not a lot of rules and watching employees and checking how they send emails and so on. Our compliance and regulatory costs are very low. Mm -hmm. But there are other companies where there's no trust and they've got to watch everything. They've got departments, they've got software, they've got IT teams and they're spending tens. I know some companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this. So, you know, when, when we talk about trust, it's not a touchy feely subject. You can attach dollars of money that you are losing per a year just because you don't have the right culture in place. Right. And, you know, in one of the, you know, premises that our research led to, one of the conclusions is that trust is built from the inside out. Yes. Right? You cannot have a trusted organization that the employees on the inside don't trust the organization because they will simply not do as good a job with the customers or whoever it is that they serve. Uh, and yeah. they would have a good reason not to, right? I was speaking to the chief ethics officer of a major tech company. And we were having a discussion about how do you get employees to do the right thing? And their view was they needed to have detailed manuals and prescribed policies for every action. But I'm thinking that's like living in a police state. There's a reason why police states inevitably collapse because the cost of keeping people in check becomes so high that it doesn't make sense anymore. Right. So, you know, that's the alternative to not having a trusting culture. You basically have a police state whereby employees have to 
waste so much time? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I think that also the idea that you can anticipate. Now that's impossible. That could possibly be done wrong, uh, that puts you over the line. But it's all, it is in business. It's always a combination, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I come from financial services and I wouldn't totally buy like a no compliance. Department. No, sure, of course, yes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so there is a rule, there's a, a place, a very big place for, you know, here's how we think about, uh, here are the principles, and then here's some practices that we just take off the table. Yes. You know, we just are not to do these things. And that kind of gradation, that sometimes is not coming through in the compliance work that people do. So it becomes like a list where everything is the same and has the same weight and value. And then it really does become hard as an employee to figure out, well, if I do this thing, is that worse than doing that thing? Uh, and so that's where the principles come in. You, you know, we believe yes, in being yes. fair to our employees. We believe in being fair to our customers. We have to do the right thing in the sense of that the, the, if there's a problem in their account, we own up to it. You know, there are some general principles of how you're going to do business. Uh, and then there's the sometimes you're going to need to specify because some of those do tr have regulatory tripwires. But a lot of time it's what's the intent here? Yes. And of course, it's also difficult with CEOs, right? Because if I worked at a company, a large company, I wouldn't want to be watched all the time. Right. But on the other hand, if something went wrong with my bank account, I'd be writing letters to the regulator asking why there's not more watches and checks for this bank. So as you say, there's no right answer. It's, it's very localized. It's a balancing act. You've got to be aware of who your constituents are, understand how far you can go. It's almost as if there's a general set of principles, as you outline in your book very well but you've got to interpret them for your own situation very carefully. Right. And I, and I think that that's why the stories that we tell, the elements of trust, you know, competence, motives, means impact, those seem to be pretty universal, meaning that's how we decide whether or not we trust an institution. The shape that that takes in a given business, that's highly local, right? The, yes. the shape that that takes in a division of that business. You know, that's highly local. And so, so I think that, you know, if people listening to this take anything out of this is that trust isn't this big thing. It's a big thing that has very specific applications. And that's why you can do something about it is because it doesn't sit in some fairy dust land of, you know, a good feeling. It really has to do with how does the consumer division treat consumers? How does it treat the employees who treat the consumers well or poorly? You know, and all of a sudden now I've got something I can get my arms around. So we talked about trust at a corporate level and the level of a CEO. Now, you mentioned we have listeners from all over the world, very senior people. How would they know as an executive that they are trusted? The reason I ask this is because we live in a culture whereby it's very hard to tell people what is really happening. I think a lot of times people are told you're doing a good job, you're trusted, but maybe you're not trusted. How do you get a real sense of where you lie? Let's start with coworkers versus consumers. How would you know that? So I, I think that, um, well, let me think. I would look for incidents like the following. Do people tell me things that embarrass them? Mm, that's a good one. I like that. You know, where they're vulnerable. Yes. Where they're they know they haven't done their very best and where they even have questions about what best would look like, right? And, and so, because one of, the, one of the cultural attributes here is to encourage a kind of a, a culture of, of truth and realism. 
And that is really important if you're trying to manage trust. Uh, and so Michelin is another companies that, I, that I've studied uh, for quite a long time. And so they have two big guiding principles. One is respect for people. Everyone says that. And the other one is respect for the facts. Yes. So I have never <laughs> encountered yeah. another company that sort of says facts matter. Yes. And so if I'm a CEO, going back to your question, the first question is, well, how have I managed facts in this organization? You know, is this a place where people come to me with problems where things have gone wrong? Am I, does someone sort of think to pick up the phone to say, I think this is an area where, I don't know what you think, I wanna to talk to you about it because I'm concerned. Now, if no one ever does that, Right. In the, all of the time that you're there, you've got too many gatekeepers and people probably don't know how you respond to bad information, to negative information. Yes. And so, so the first thing, you know, and, and I've spent a fair amount of time trying to understand all the ways in which Boeing fell apart. Uh, yeah. and, and this, you know, and so that was an environment in which Dennis Mullenberg was someone who just wouldn't hear anything that was negative that sort of VW was the same with Wintercorn. You know, it was known that he was someone who really hated hearing bad news. Yes. And so, you know, that's like an invitation to not be trusted and with good reason, because if I know I'm going to get my head handed to me and my career yeah. involved, uh, if I'm the person who brings this up, because usually trust comes up when we're vulnerable and we're vulnerable quite a lot of the time because we're trying to communicate about something negative. Yes. Now, what you're saying is a really powerful thing in order to unpack this. Let's look at any major company in the world today, right? It's staffed by some very smart people. These men and women, highly educated, years of experience. In my time in consulting, it's very rare I will go into a company and know more than they know about their company. Maybe I can see it from a different perspective, fresh pair of eyes, but they know what's happening. So the question becomes, if they know what's happening, they have advanced data, why are they not doing anything about it? Yeah. It's partially the fact that there's someone there that doesn't want to hear the mm -hmm. truth. If you look at any company in the world, I think every company I've seen and gone into, it always comes down to the fact that someone very important is not willing to listen to hard data. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think that uh, if, you know, so of all the different kinds of fairness that matters, information fairness is like the most important. Yes, uh, and I like that way, You know, the way that companies end up being unfair is where they don't actually know of all of what's going on, right? So they can't even yeah. communicate about it because they don't know. And why don't they know? Because people don't trust that if they come forward with this information, that good things will happen and not bad things. And so this is, you know, this is kind of, what would I say? It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is real management, real leadership, Yes. where it's not just something you can sort of say, this is our new banner we're going to march under. It's like every day, what have I done to make people feel like I will welcome the person who comes to my office and says, I think we may have a problem here, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a very powerful way of saying it. I don't think many CEOs are thinking that way. Because at the end of the day, you know, we always say CEOs only worry about the share price. No, they worry about their job first. And if they're going to lose their job because of bad news, because it happened under their watch, it's human nature to try to suppress it. It even gets worse when it's something that is a criminal act, even though they may never have been responsible for it, but it happened under their watch. Human nature is to try to bury it. 
Right. And, and I, I think that, you know, the research, this, there's social psychology and neuroscience around the fact that you, you sort of have one set of skills coming into a role as a leader. And then the fact of being a leader actually starts to erode those skills. Uh, and so yeah, there's a nice there, thing. Yes. And so there's a set of uh, attributes, they're called the big five in psychology, and they have to do with things like this is called enthusiasm, which is translated into how much do you care and take an interest in other people, right? And then it's humility, it's calmness, it's several things like that. And people who have studied this for a while, what they found was that in order to become recognized as a leader, to be trusted, you know, yeah. you have to exhibit this interest in other people and all this sort of stuff. But then what happens is there's a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Yeah. Uh, and this comes into your brain and it basically makes you highly attuned to rewards. And so being in a position of authority means that you start to narrow your view uh, from everyone's interest matter to what is it that I can benefit from? How does this help me accomplish my goals? Uh, and so actually being a leader is this internal battle uh, yes. between the kind of outward other orientation that lots of leaders have uh, and then the forces that come with just being in that leadership role. Uh, so there's a remarkable study that was done by uh, Adam Galinsky, who's a, a researcher in this area. And so uh, they used a technology called priming, where you basically mm -hmm. yes, to think about themselves in a certain way. And so people, and this was uh, having to do with power. And so the primes that they had is think about a time when you were in a position in power, write about that. Think about a time for the other group that where you were, if someone had power over you, what was that like? Uh, then you go through an exercise where they say, think about you, if you're in the power group, you say, you know, you have seven tickets to an event to distribute. How many of them will you give to other people? How many will you keep for yourself? Yeah. And then if you're on the other side, it's sort of like there are seven tickets to be distributed. How many do you think you'll get? So they, they do all of this preparation yeah. uh, and they bring you into the lab and they say, okay, uh, we're going to ask you with your dominant hand to snap your fingers three times as quickly as you can and then write the letter E on your forehead. They give them a marker. And so the people who are in the dominant mode write the letter E as if they're reading it. Mm. And the people That's who are in low power mode write it so that the other person can read it clearly. That's empathy. Exactly. And, and so it's this amazing influence of power and whether we think we have it, on um, whether we become self-oriented. So it yes. matters, can I read the E? Or whether we actually, if we're in a low power position, we feel it's so important for other people to be able to read our E. And so it's such a wonderful example of what great research looks like because everyone had sort of known that there was this you know, power thing that was going on, but something that quick that you can do in a lab like that you know, that shows that this is going on all the time. So my heart does go out to leaders because it's tough to keep fighting that. And so, but I, I, that's part of why we wrote about the study in the book is that I hope that if you arm people with the understanding that there's yes. some that are undermining the empathy that kind of brought them into the role that they have, that they can be more attuned to the fact that they may be closing off other perspectives that otherwise they would have actually found important. When I was speaking to Manfred Ketz de Fries, he told me the same thing. I asked him, 
if you just picked the most important trait you've seen in successful leaders, you said empathy. And one of the things I've noticed is, you know, working with so many CEOs is that you can't have one dominant personality because different situations call for different skill sets. You have to be tough sometimes. You have to have some self-interest, right? This is capitalism. But you've got to be able to know the state you're in when you're making decisions. Mm. The awareness of the state you're in when you're making a decision. And that's what I've seen with good CEOs. They know the state they're in and they know the shortcomings of that state. And they're willing to step back and say, I've made this decision. This is the state I'm in. So what are the shortfalls here? How do I need to compensate? But if we don't know the state we're in, I think that's the difficulty. Because we don't know when we're continuously in a power state. Right. No, I, I think that's true. And there are tricks, you know, that you, I remember reading Bob Rubin's autobiography. And one of the things I took out of it was anytime that he didn't have to make a decision right away, he didn't. And so it was this discipline because in business, we feel like, oh my God, you know, we've got to figure this out by the end of the day, yes. you know, or by the end of next week, we're going to put this in a time box. We're going to get the answer. Uh, and he was smart enough to know that actually, while as useful as it is to time box decision-making, that that actually puts a pressure that can yield bad decisions. And so, because it really blocks off the, let's sit back and think about this. Let's let it germinate. Yes. You know, let's let's go into the shower after we exercise in the morning and kind of see, does it still make sense to us? And so that's a way that I think you can start to try to figure out where your state is and to not get bowled over by some artificial sense of needing to make decisions before you need to. And this is where I think role modeling becomes very, very important, because, you know, we have clients in the tech sector who follow these very famous tech investors and tech CEOs who do things in a certain way. And then whether or not they know it, if you only read about one person, you only know what they do, you role model their behavior. Yeah. So if you want to, I think, understand trust and empathy, you have to make sure you're you're actively role modeling the right kind of people. Mm. I, I think that that's right. And, you know, for what it's worth, one trick that I've found, the more that I've been doing this research is how important it is to have on one-on-one conversations with people whose companies interest me, but where the first part of it is all about just getting to know each other. Yes. So when I first started doing work with Michelin, I remember I flew to Paris, you know, and we're at one of the, and, but we had like a two hour lunch. Yeah. So French, right? You, you know, and we That's never good. talked about business. Yeah. You know, how many kids do you have? We talked about philosophy. We talked about political issues. Yeah. We talked about art. And then two hours later, we walked into a conference room and started doing work. And we did much better work because we'd taken the time to do that. And so I've actually now built that into my research protocol, which is, you know, when I have, I used to kind of go out and just say, I've got questions to ask and I'm so glad you're giving me the time to do it. And now it's like, who is this person? And and who am I? And so I tell stories about myself and things that are true about my background. And it's amazing how, because what we're doing is we're establishing empathy. Yes, you are humanizing the person by taking the time to know them. Right. And so I think that for CEOs, it's also pretty easy to kind of take people and confuse their role with the fact that there's a real person sitting across the desk. Yeah. And the best CEOs, you know, and it's not just, you know, how's your son doing, Sandra, at college? Uh, You know, it's they really are invested in or at least interested in the people who they work with. 
And I think also, if you don't humanize someone, you are effectively dehumanizing them. Mm. And when you dehumanize someone, whether it's a, a country in the world, whether it's a group of people, whether it's an individual, it's a lot easier to do something that's not pleasant for them. Right, right. But when yeah. you know someone at a personal level, you actually will care about them. Empathy becomes natural. It's not something you have to force. No, that's that's true. And there's a whole uh, psychology around what's called moral disengagement. Uh, and dehumanization is one part of that. And these are moral disengagement, all these techniques that we use to try to do things that we otherwise know are bad, but yes. somehow excuse. And dehumanization is one of you know the top eight things that you do. It's like, well, this person's not really a person, right? Yeah, you know? so we see it in newspapers every single day, right? Right. Every Each party, I don't mean political party, whatever argument is being made, one side is trying to dehumanize the other side. Right, right. Yeah, no right-thinking person would ever think X. And I think one important thing that listeners need to understand is that some of the toughest leaders I know are also leaders that people trust completely. It's not about being soft. You can be very driven, very demanding, and yet you can have the total trust of the people with whom you work. Yeah, and I, I think that that's true. And it's, it's such a helpful insight to people to understand that trust isn't soft the way they yes, think. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's not like I'm loving this person. Yeah. It's like this is someone who's thought this through, who's, consi who's consistent where consistency matters, who's willing to do something different, even though they said something before for good reasons, uh, you know, who reasons with me. Uh, and there are a whole series of things where you kind of go, this is someone who I can do business with. Yes. Uh, and when you do that, it's like, okay, then all kind. And the other thing about trust that's so great is trust allows you to do things that would not be possible if trust weren't in the room. And I find it so amazing that everyone in the world actually gets a very powerful crash course on trust, but they don't seem to take those lessons into the business environment. I'm talking about relationships. Mm. But everyone has been in a relationship where trust was an issue and it hurt them immensely. But when we go into the work environment, we don't, we seem to put that aside and say, why is trust important? When we know why it's important, we've been through something that didn't work because of trust. I, I think that that's right. I think that uh, the reason part of uh, my speculation is that part of why that goes on is that it is somewhat different mm -hmm. uh, to a, because trust in companies is not just a one-on-one -on -one thing. It's really yes. groups against groups. Well, as you mentioned, stakeholders, uh, multi-stakeholders. Right. And, and so it's, so there is a translation and it's why you need a process for understanding what trust is uh, that kind of spells it out more clearly than the kinds of things that you can sort of intuit as you're in a relationship. And you, you know, if you've been betrayed, if someone betrays a confidence, if someone, yes. you know, all of that sort of stuff is clear in a company where you're trying to accomplish a common goal, but have different interests, you know, that's a harder application. And so I, I think that there is a reason why it's not so natural to kind of go, well, you know, I trust my partner or not yes. uh, into, you know, this is how I apply that in the workplace, because this is all of a sudden interest at a different kind of level. So as you say, I mean, use a good word, you need a translator, mm -hmm. as you're not going to know how to use those lessons. Right. Sandra, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Okay. It was so good. Great. Well, thank you so much. You know, I, I am thrilled. This was a great conversation. I loved it. I loved it too. I mean, you mentioned you just started doing podcasts. 
Yeah. Sandra, I'm going to give you some advice. Please continue doing podcasts. <laughs> you are very, very good in front of a camera. You are amazing. You're one of the best people I've ever spoken to. And I hope that you do more talking, lectures, podcasts. You're very, very good. You're very sincere. You know your work. There are very few people that know their work at your level. Well, thank you. So I hope you continue. You're very good at it. I mean, do videos because you just have an amazing way of coming across. Oh, I, I, I am so grateful to you for saying that because no, I am it's, and it's like, is this working? Is this okay? No, so, I mean, I think that's why you come across so well because you have not, you're not scripted. Mm. You know, a lot of people, they just do podcasts after podcasts. They haven't taken the time to think about whether that routine they developed is best for them. So you're just being natural. And I think you're great at this. I think if you did more podcasts, it'll be good for your career, good for your next book. It'll just be excellent. So I enjoyed it immensely and I hope you continue doing it. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being such a great person to talk to. Take care and we'll be in touch. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.